Hello, and welcome to On Point, a podcast by Oak Street Funding, where we bring research and data-backed insights to dig into the minds of industry leaders to learn how to stand out, navigate, and break through this ever-changing industry. I'm your host, Bridget Height, and you can support the podcast by following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on our website, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there hanging out, talking to industry leaders, and ready to empower you to grow your business. So let's get on point. Today, I am delighted to welcome Susie McEwen and Dennis Leninger to the show. Susie is Vice President of Strategic Markets for Oak Street Funding, and Dennis is President of Business Transition Solutions. So today, they're going to share ideas for growth and transition for financial advisor practices. Welcome to the show, Susie. Dennis, welcome. Thank you, Bridget. So glad to be here. Dennis, this is actually, a, I mean, it's a privilege to have you with us today. Um, I like to tell the viewers how long you and I have worked together. It's been probably going on almost six years, and we have worked with hundreds of advisors um, in situations where we're trying to su support their growth and transition to independence or maybe transitioning to an RIA. And I think you and I work very well as a tag team because of the, the expertise that you bring into the industry. I think you and I have paralleled in our careers, you got excess of 30 years, even though you look like you're 20, um, 30 years of experience and as, as a consultant. And I, over 30 years, probably a little bit more than that, but I'll, I'll refrain from saying how many, but um, of years of lending money. And you know, I, I wanna share to the viewers that, um, I mean, with your expertise, you are a CEPA, and that's a Certified Exit, Exit Planning Advisor, and you're also an ASCP, which is an accredited small business consultant. And so it's, it's exciting for us to be together today and help maybe support our viewers as far as growth um, with M&A and also going independent. Bridget? My gosh, high praise. So great to have you on the show, Dennis. <laughs> well, thanks very much for having me. And as we get into a later series of questions, I think we'll have an opportunity to illustrate how Oak Street and, and BTS and Susie and I in particular have worked together to get a good outcome for our mutual clients. Great. Well, without further ado, let's just jump right into it, shall we? So let's start by talking about uh, the first things you should do before a transition. So looking in the mirror, right? What should a financial advisor practice look at internally before deciding to buy or sell? Dennis, I'll go ahead and start with you. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about the buyer first. Um, I think it's important to understand exactly the type of practice that you want to buy, you know, the makeup of it, the type of business lines, just because it's different from yours doesn't mean that you shouldn't acquire it if there's the opportunity to perhaps transition it or if it's a line of business that you want to get into and it's a demographic of client that you're interested in and also location. Location is a key part of the decision, what you're going to target as far as an acquisition. It has to be a location you can serve. Sure, locally is great because you have an economy of scale to go ahead and bring that in. But it's really good to be able to take a look at another location as well. If you can get there to take care of clients occasionally in person, perhaps retain some of the staff at the practice that you are acquiring. 
And if it gives you a toll hold in an area where you can grow it into a footprint, then I think that that's an excellent uh, strategy to make with it. You need to look internally to see if you have the infrastructure to really take care of those additional clients. If you buy a practice with 100, 150 households, probably not going to be a big thing. If you buy a practice that has 600 households, it's going to put a lot of stress not only on you and maybe other FAs you have, but also your CAs. And so you do need to stop and take a look at that and how you would meld that into your current activity. Um, financial, that's obviously a big part of it. It's good to find out how you might go ahead and finance something like this so you're not overly surprised later in a transaction. That might be a good point to talk with both your broker dealer on what they can do to support you, but also then to reach out to someone like Susie at Oak Street Capital and talk about the possibilities there. Um, so you know going into it what it would look like and how you would approach it. And then lastly, I think you should talk to someone like me to understand what the seller is really looking for because it's not just a financial decision. And if I could just talk briefly then about the seller, they've never sold their business before. This is something that they've worked for years and years and years to build. I've sold three of my businesses. I can tell you that it's emotional each time because you put your blood, sweat and tears in it. You get up every day and do it. So you need to think about the emotional aspects of it, not just the logistical or financial aspects of it and start thinking a little bit about what's important to you. And I'll tell you that most times, more times than not, what's important to a seller is making sure that their clients are well taken care of. Um, so that's that's going to be what they look at. On the other side, they should get a valuation from a fully accredited valuation company. Um, with BTS, we work with three different valuation companies. We refer clients to those companies. We do not get referral bonuses or revenue sharing because we just simply want to stop referring people to them if they don't give our clients a good experience. Um, but you should get a valuation, not only to get a sense for what it is worth in the market, but also to understand some of the um, value drivers that go into determining that valuation, because that's what the buyers are going to be interested in asking you. And that's where the negotiation is. Much like when you sell a house, you can get an appraised value and you might think that's the price. But to a buyer looking at it, if they see that they're going to have to replace the roof in a year, that cost of owning that house may change the price going into it. And as a seller, you need to be aware of what those things might be before you enter into discussions. Great. All great points. Susie, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, no, Dennis, you, I mean, hit it on spot on. And, you know, it sounds with um, our borrowers or buyers when they're looking at looking at buying a book of business or an RIA, it sounds really exciting. And, mm -hmm. and, and the reality of it is if they've never done this before, they really need to team up with Dennis, um, a firm like his, um, Business Transition Solutions. And like he said, um, reach out to an evaluation company. The key things are gonna be that as us as a lender, and other lenders out there, we want to make sure they have their house in order, their financials in order. And if they've never done this before, this is not just a transaction. This is about a relationship. With Oak Street, Oak Street Funding, we 
we don't sell our loans. They stay on our balance sheet and we want to expand our relationship. We have the capital to, to lend up to 50 million. We're a conventional lender, which allows us to be a little bit more creative. And Dennis can probably detest to this that we, every deal that we look at or transaction or opportunity, they all look different. And so as a conventional lender, we can be, be creative in helping that that buyer, that borrower get to the finish line. But I always enjoy and I always encourage my clients or prospective clients that call in and go, you know, I've heard about you. I'm looking at a possibility of buying a book of business. I've never done this before. And I like that because I can help educate them from start to finish. I always then get dentists involved with the transaction and say, Dennis, they may need some consulting. They may need help structuring. They may need help with performance because with us being the lender, you know, we've got to draw a line in the sand. Right. But some of these advisors or RIAs don't realize that, you know, we do a lot of our own due diligence. We're checking to see if their ADV is clear and clean. We look at how long they've been in the industry. What do their financials look like? Are they paying their taxes on, on time? We look in the rear view mirror at their financial situation, but we also look in the future of what they're gonna look like after they buy that book of business. And all those comments that Dennis said, what is approaching that buyer and seller together? What's the chemistry? It's definitely like a marriage. And we wanna make sure that at the end, post-closing, that it is gonna be successful for not only the seller, but the buyer as well. Okay, great. So um, my next question is, what are some of the common mistakes that buyers and sellers make in financial advisor practice transitions? Dennis, do you want to start off with that? Common mistakes? Yeah, well, Bridget, that's a great, great question. And I'm going to kind of couple that with common mistake to the biggest mistake. Mm, good, yes. Um, because the ones that are most impactful, and that's where we spend a lot of our time looking at that obstacle and making sure that it's it's going to be smooth sailing and that gets to the messaging to the client and the whole client experience because the the sale is contingent from both parties standpoint on a successful retention of those clients and so i always say it doesn't matter what happens in the kitchen it's all about a good dining experience and we want to make sure that the clients you know have a really good experience throughout this and so the client messaging strategy, engaging the seller and having them perhaps have a little, a little incentive to make sure that it is a good transition. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later as we talk about risk. Um, and, and then just having a really strong strategy and understanding how are the clients going to hear this? How are they going to experience it? What about multiple contacts with the, the buyer? because it's not just in that initial messaging, it's about what happens after. What you hear are things like, yeah, we had a good meeting, you know, six months ago, and then I never heard from you again. And so just, just downstreaming that entire process and thinking like that. Remember, these are not new clients. These are clients where a change has been perpetrated upon them, if you will. And right. so we need to handle them a little bit differently than we would existing clients or new clients. Um, so that's that's a key part of it, just the whole transition part and making sure you don't move as a buyer too quickly with the sellers. Um, 
you don't the, the one thing that the one that I've seen in, in all the years of doing this is despite the coaching and them nodding their head that they understood is in that first meeting with seller and buyer and a client the seller launched into how they do things differently <laughs> okay. and and they lost immediately 15% of their client base and okay. so you don't have to be afraid of that you just need to not do that <laughs> so those are the types of things that we look at and then just not having good documents not having good communication and good understanding of exactly what it is that you put together. Okay, so the theme is communication. Don't make the mistake of not having good communication. Susie, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I agree, Dennis. And um, recently experienced where the attorney that was involved in a transaction had never written up an agreement by sell agreement for an advisory firm. So that added some complexity and challenges because the attorney was trying to advise the seller um, and what they normally do in other industries. But as all as we both know, we all know that um, an independent advisory practice and an RIA is wrapped up a little bit differently. Communication is key. Being transparent is key. And I love buyers, borrowers and sellers that are that are organized and they think out a definitely a strategic plan not only for um, the transaction as far as the buy-sell, but obviously, like you said, Dennis, with the clients, because that is going to what makes the whole thing successful, is making sure those clients are aware and why this is happening, but also the staff. I mean, because the staff is a support behind the growth you know, of the practice. And so I always say this, surround yourself with the experts. Don't depend on yourself being the buyer, the advisor, the RIA, to know everything. Get with um, Dennis, with his team, you know, get with us early. We can, like you said, Dennis, um, provide names of valuation, um, attorneys that can help put everything together. Okay. I feel like we've been talking about this the whole time, but do you have anything else to add about minimizing risk, Dennis? Yeah, you're right, Bridget. This is about minimizing risk as we go through it. It's like you want to you want to get across a tightrope, but you need to make sure that if you fall, there's something there to catch you. Right. And so the documents and making sure that they are fair and equitable for each party is a key portion of this. Um, some of the, the listeners may not know that uh, it's possible that the seller will carry or could carry at least a portion of the sale price, a, a promissory note, along with bank financing. And so understanding how that can be guaranteed and what happens if the seller can't make payments or if the market goes down and it puts too big of a strain on the buyer to make the payment that month, how is that going to work? Um, what happens if the buyer passes or is permanently disabled? Is there, or, or is there a plan forward to who's going to take the practice or insurance coverage, a continuity plan in place so that there's a continuation of service and then therefore revenue? So all those kinds of things have to be looked at to protect the, the seller. From the buyer standpoint, it's about due diligence, due diligence, due diligence, and okay. making sure that they understand what they are buying. And so you need to look at the advisor and how they do things and what's their service model and how do they communicate to clients? What kinds of, of investment activities do they have those clients in? And then 
feel comfortable with the idea of how are you going to work with that client knowing all those kinds of things. You know, not all FAs are created equal and you don't have to be the same, but you do need to have a successful retention. And that means that you have to work with those clients and they may not be a direct fit into your clients. Okay. Do you have anything else to add about mitigating risks? Yeah, well, I think we add value as a lender Oak Street Funding because we have a processing team that we basically look under the hood of the car. We want to make sure that we can validate and verify the AUM, the revenue stream. We want to make sure that um, the demographics are aligned and um, and it's to protect the, the buyer and the seller and also Oak Street funding. So we we work together. We get enough information from the buyer and the seller to do an analysis to get our client, the borrower, a term sheet. But we're going to ask for uh, reports. Uh, we're going to ask for if they are a 1099 advisor, 1099s, tax returns. We will check taxes. We'll check UCC, UCC, Uniform Commercial Code, see if there are any liens out there from other other creditors. So we are going to try to peel back the onion to make sure that there are no skeletons in the closet. And that is to help all of us. The one thing that we like um, when it comes to an M&A transaction, we like the seller to be involved post-closing. I think that is critical to make sure that the book sticks, that the seller is still involved um, to help with those client meetings, follow-up, one-on-ones, um, phone calls, that sort of thing. Okay, great. Great advice. Um, so what are the key terms to include in a practice purchase agreement? How do you evaluate a good structure? Dennis, I'll start with you on that. To come up with a good purchase agreement, I think it's absolutely necessary to have a good term sheet, a non-binding uh, term sheet that really goes through all the aspects of the sale, the structure, obviously the price, the structure, uh, the tax allocation, which I know we're going to get to in a little bit. Um, if there is a look back uh, clause on this based on retention percentages, that that's very clearly understood by both parties. Remember what one person says isn't necessarily what another individual hears, that the transition assistance that is going to be provided by the seller to the buyer is well-defined um, and not just haphazardly said. Uh, there should be a non-solicitation. A lot of times it's too much to put a non-compete in something like this, um, although if you can, then you should. But a non-solicitation that is, again, well-defined, not just for not soliciting, but really not working with the client base that's involved in the sale is really important. A bill of sale that determines exactly what was sold, what was acquired. And the terms of payment obviously need to be very well defined as well. Um, and then just how the transition is going to work involving the broker dealer, et cetera. And we always say to the buyer borrower upfront, as soon as you have some kind of draft mm -hmm. of a purchase agreement, um, or we can provide being Oak Street funding, some of the things we're gonna look for in the buy-sell agreement, uh, reps and warranties, like Dennis said, uh, non-solicitation. And one thing that we as a bank require um, is a subordination agreement if there's a seller note out there or an earn out. And so I try 
right up front to let my client, the borrower, know if you're going to have a seller note or an earnout, we will require a subordination. And what that means is that we just are putting the uh, seller on notice is that we're a creditor and the buyer borrower is going to be paying them as well as us at the same time okay. that if there's not enough cash flow to cover both payments, we're paid first. Mm -hmm. So we try to get that all out. So that's what we always say to prospective clients, get us involved as soon as possible right. because we can help guide that through that process. Okay. Fantastic. Um, so when buying or selling, we know that there are things to consider besides the terms and the partners. Dennis, what are the tax implications for buying or selling? Well, I am not a CPA, but I talk with them daily on this, and, and that's one of the things that we do. Um, but what we, we tend to do on this, I'm going to say that maybe 90, 95% of the sales we do are asset sales. And that positions the, the buyer to depreciate a portion of the sale price off over 15 years. Certainly doesn't make them rich, but it does ease the pain a little bit on the cash flow. And that's important to be able to make those payments. And the same tax consideration that does that also with today's laws will be long-term capital gains for the seller. And that tax allocation is goodwill. And for goodwill, we are seeing 90 to 95 percent. I've seen a couple hundred percents, although I think that that's being pretty aggressive. Um, but 90 to 95 percent seems pretty average. And so that's a significant, a significant opportunity to get long term capital gains and a significant opportunity to depreciate the sale price. So let's give the listeners some real examples. And you've been doing this the whole time. So thank you for that, Dennis. Can you each provide an example of someone who had a successful transition and how they managed to get it right? Susie, I'll start with you. Yeah, actually, I have a few situations where they're very one. One was um, obviously an acquisition, M&A, and then the other was a shareholder buyout. Okay. And shareholder buyout was an RIA. But talking or giving the example of the IAR, what I've seen is very successful is even with an RIA, if if there's a advisor that is looking to retire, and let's say for an example, I know that advisor, and we have known each other in the community, sometimes it works, I guess, really, I mean, really favorable that if they can move that advisor over to the either the RIA that's going to buy it okay. or the independent advisor's book of business and just call it kind of like dating where they haven't bought the book, uh -huh. but they're coming in under their brand, their marketing, and they're working, the buyer and the seller are working in tandem before they actually do the transaction. That way the clients start to get to know that firm, right. get to know the buyer. I That has been very, very successful right. because it seems like it just seems transparent. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and that way, if it, if it doesn't work out, there's not this, you know, transaction that occurred, um, shareholder buyouts. I have worked with a number of different RIAs where next gen is buying out the founder. And if they start early where they're buying in or they're buying incremental shares. And, um, I've had a few that they start working with us as a lender 18 to 24 months before the transaction starts. We get to know our client really well. They get to know us. 
we're finding out through that process, how do they know to run a business? Um, they're taking over. They were the advisors and now they're becoming the president and CEO. And if, if everyone starts early in that process, it, it really will be successful. Okay. Dennis, do you have any examples of smooth transitions? Honestly, our point is is to make them all as smooth as possible. But right. to, to real, and I don't mean to, but there's always going to be bumps. Sometimes they break apart and come back together before the sale a little bit, you know, because they just get exhausted with trying to work everything out. Some people just don't have the stamina to really focus and do that. And I get that. It's like I said, it's emotional for the seller and for the buyer. It can be too, because it's a large amount of money and risk in their mind. So, but there was one that was fairly recent and it's a good opportunity because uh, Susie and I worked on this together and she, she saved the day with it. Um, and this, this may have been the one you were talking about or just another one like it where actually both the seller and buyer's attorneys stuck their nose way too deep into this and completely hijacked the situation. And it, it did cause that exhaustion with both parties on trying to get a deal done because it disrupted, despite a good term sheet, it disrupted the communication and the understanding and the trust level. And um, Oak Street was involved in, in providing funding for part of this. And Susie went above and beyond to talk with the seller and give their, her some education as far as here's how this works. Here's what this means. Here's what we do. Here's what we can provide. And just that reassurance, you don't think of the lender being involved that much, but that's why it's important to choose the right lender. Thank you, Dennis. That's yeah. very kind, but it's, it's, it, it takes a village and it takes teamwork. So Dennis, I have, I like to ask a fun question at the end of On Point. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Well, that's presumptuous. Why do you think I don't? <laughs> <laughs> do tell. I'd be the flat. I'd be the flash because I got a lot to do and I look good in red. <laughs> you look good in red. Thanks, Dennis. And how about you, Susie? What would you what would you choose? Well, first thing that comes to my mind is Mighty Mouse, you know, trying to save the day, you know, the, the old saying. And um I actually dressed up as Mighty Mouse for Halloween one time. Aww. But you know, I think as far as superpowers, time manipulation, Ooh, you know, going back in time, because I've, you know, obviously I've made some mistakes at, at some point in my, my lifestyle and lifetime, but, um, but also looking ahead, I'm one of those, I like to be prepared. I like to know what's going to happen, but also I'd like to go back in time and go, you know, people that I've know that were experts and go, how would you have done this? You know, tap into their brain and just slowing, you know, father, time down, you know, because it's moving too fast. Great answers. Very insightful. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. Susie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. You're the best. Well, thank you all for listening to On Point, a podcast by Oak Street Funding, where we bring research and data-backed insights to dig into the minds of industry leaders to learn how to stand out, navigate, and break through this ever-changing industry. I'm Bridget Height, and tune in next time wherever you listen to podcasts as we get On Point. Don't forget to subscribe and leave, leave us a review.